Welcome to the Supergirl Supercast, part of the incomparable network of podcasts. Today, we're going to be talking about Season 3, Episode 11 of Supergirl, Fort Ross. I'm your host, Trishy M. Hi, I'm David Schaub. And I'm Michael Gabriel. And I believe that uh, you have a report from National City and Fort Ross for us, David? Here is the recap from National City and Fort Ross. Dream Team Plot The D.E.O. tracked down a dark priestess to Fort Ross, which is apparently now orbiting another star, which is lethal to men and may have an event horizon. Seriously, people. Supergirl collects Psy and Livewire, and Saturn Girl flies them to Fort Ross. Supergirl learns that there are more world killers. Rain kills the priestess to shut her up. Win, Brainiac 5, and Voyager 1 save them from falling into the star. Livewire sacrifices herself to save Supergirl. Psy then saves Supergirl more effectively by driving off Rain. They go home and hopefully question if that was worth it. Alex and Ruby plot. Alex babysits Ruby while Sam fails to go on a business trip. Ruby helps Alex deal with a text from Maggie. Alex helps Ruby by scaring a cyberbully straight. Sam picks up Ruby and has no idea where she's been. Okay, so um, this was a really fun episode. I, uh, you know, I've had a few episodes where I've been just mainly complaining about logic, but this has a lot of neat stuff to talk about, so I'm excited about it. Yeah, I, I definitely have some complaints, but I enjoyed this one too. Overall, I would agree. The last one felt just like it was sort of going nowhere, and this at least goes somewhere. I don't understand why it goes there, but at least it goes somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. So the uh, Sam and Rain plot uh, goes all through the episode. But uh, let's just talk about Alex and Ruby for a minute. Um, I enjoyed the babysitting, even though uh, even though it turned into Alex being kind of abusing her powers a, bit, a wee bit, but it was in a good cause, so I guess that's okay. <laughs> Every once in a while I have to remind myself, wait, she's just pretending to be the FBI. Because she does it so regularly in the show. That you almost <laughs> get used to it. It's like, no, no, wait a second. She's lying. But uh, whatever. I wonder about that. <laughs> right. I mean, she is government, but she's not FBI. She's DEO. I wonder about that sometimes in these uh, shows when they have secret like, organizations. Do those secret organizations, like, do they get carte blanche to impersonate the FBI? Like, is that a thing? Or are they also breaking the law? Well, we've never really had all of their legal and extra legal powers uh, explained to us. <laughs> I'm sure they would hold up under scrutiny. I'm sure. I, I'm sure they'd get a uh, presidential pardon from our alien president, president uh, if needed. I quite like this part. I think it's interesting how they've sort of transitioned Alex in that because she wants to have kids, therefore she sort of has levitated towards or gravitated towards interacting with Ruby and being sort of a surrogate caregiver for Ruby a little bit. And it plays out really well. Yeah, it's pretty cool to actually to be able to see Ruby have, you know, women to look up to aside from just her mom, who is awesome. But uh, mm -hmm. but it's cool because, you know, we've, of course, seen this community of women around Sam, who, you know, many of us have said before is a pretty positive thing about this season. Uh, but it's also really cool to see them sort of interacting with Ruby as well. The only thing I might like to have seen is... I have difficulty buying that Ruby doesn't see anything wrong with her mom. And if there, there was a sort of sharing moment of this means of communication between Alex and Ruby, it might have been nice if 
they had also had just a, something in there for Ruby to say that she's not quite sure where her mum is sometimes or something like that. It's not much of a loss. I, I really quite liked it. And honestly, the scene, the appearance on Ruby's face right after the uh, cyberbully gets scared is just priceless. <laughs> it is. I hadn't actually thought about that, but yeah, this would have been, considering the ending of the episode, would have been a perfect opportunity for Ruby to just say something, even if it's something Alex completely disregards initially. Yeah. Uh, it was a perfect occasion. But yeah, we're not really missing out that much. Well, I was thinking when um, when Alex went off into a trance uh, after getting the letter from Maggie and Ruby was like calling her out of it, Ruby didn't seem at all freaked out by this. So I was, I was thinking, you know, she's Ruby has had some experience dealing with adult women who aren't there. So I mean, I've, I've said before that I don't, although Sam tries hard, her mothering skills maybe are not the best, um, especially as, as regards babysitters and stuff. So maybe she's kind of used to, Ruby is kind of used to adult women kind of checking out a little bit. It's possible. Yeah. So anyway, uh, on to the plot of the show. Um, <laughs> uh, first of all, on Supergirl's exceedingly variable strength, we now know that she has enough to throw a prison light years away. Um, <clears throat> Maybe it went through a wormhole. <sighs> yeah, I, I don't know. So it's funny, too, because the way they say it, uh, they bring up Fort Ross in the first place and Supergirl goes, but I threw that into space. And then they're like, we thought so, but it's over next to a star. I was like, I'm pretty sure stars are in space. I, <laughs> I, yes. I think that's how that works. Throwing into space is not the same thing as throwing away. <laughs> I think we may have to have a sort of an inaugural section in this in this podcast where we discuss super science. And I think this is a great episode to discuss just just the, the super science that we've seen. And, and definitely this scene has a lot of super science. <laughs> Indeed. I actually went back to watch the season finale just to see what it actually looked like when Supergirl took Fort Ross into space. And effectively, she sort of brings it up into the high atmosphere, pushes it slowly away. It floats away. And that's the last we see of it. So how far away is this supposed to be right now? How, how far is this star supposed to be? I mean, it's got to be at several light years away, right? Well, it has to be, but... Obviously, they didn't do any research. I briefly did look <laughs> up nearby stars, and it's either going to be type B or a type O star, and they're probably tens to, to maybe a thousand light years away. So she threw it at several times the speed of light. Is what I'm, I'm seeing here. But in a way such that when it got to the other star, it went into orbit. Hmm. Right. Yes. Makes this perfect is, sense. of course, impossible. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll get to the speed of light and communication later on, too. So. <laughs> <laughs> so the star that it ended up being captured by, it turns out that this star emits a radiation which is harmful only to men. Um. I I I have a little trouble <laughs> with a sex deterministic <laughs> binding of radioactive particles or however that works. It's not unprecedented in science fiction. Sharon McCrum's Bimbos of the Death Sun comes to mind, but <laughs> it's still uh, do we want to discuss that or glide on? <laughs> yeah, so I don't object to having plot points where the entire point is just to make it so that you have ladies hanging out with ladies, right? Like, that's pretty great. 
But this is basically just outright saying, we don't want men involved in this action bit, so here you go. <laughs> but it's almost worse than that, because it's we don't want men to be in this action bit. And rather than saying that the women are the right one to, to send, we'll give this excuse as to why we can't send men and why we have to send women. I don't even think it's a very positive message in that regard either. I have so many issues with this scene. From start to finish, there are bizarrenesses, not only in the super science, but even in the directing and the writing and the effects. Even from the start, where they say the priestess is in Fort Ross. Well, that meant Colville, Colville said he talked to a priestess. They didn't say he broke into an alien prison that had crash-landed, found her, went to this dark area, and got out alive. I had assumed the priestess had also left Fort Ross. By the time Fort Ross was thrown into space, I figured it was pretty empty. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, actually. I, why would she have been hanging out in Fort Ross still? <sighs> maybe, maybe he talked with her in an astral projection or something like that. Maybe it was a dream <laughs> that was a, a, a waking vision. So, accepting that this doesn't make sense, there's also the fact that, like, <laughs> if Supergirl's not going to have powers, why is she going on this trip? I'm I'm not really sure why you would pick her over other women who are maybe better trained than she is, uh, if they're all going to be on equal footing. Um, which also plays into some later power level stuff that's odd. Not just across, uh, not just among Supergirl, but the other women who are involved. I'm pretty sure I've seen other DEO agents who are female. Pretty sure. Yes, we've seen several of them. <laughs> I have to admit, I took a picture of my screen to get the expression on John's face right before he was going to say that it's poisonous to men. Because I think he's pretty much as shocked by the silliness of it all as we are. <laughs> <laughs> but just going back a couple lines, there was some lines that were okay written, but the way they were directed and produced felt broken. Because they basically give Imra and Monel, a ridiculous pair of lines where Imra says, Did you say A7336XB12? Which is on the screen in front of them. She can read it. They can all read it. Why is she asking? And even as odd that question is, Monel then adds to it by saying, That's a blue star, which is also on the screen in front of us. <laughs> and it just, yeah, it, it felt like that effect was not planned by the writer and no one cleaned it up or decided, wait a second, no, we have to move this around. It doesn't make any sense the way it actually plays out in that scene. Everything about yeah. that scene is wrong. Yeah, of course, the more organic way would have been like, wait, that sounds familiar. That, I like, and looking at it, it sure looks like it's a blue star where you won't have powers. Just, like, jump to the conclusion, Yeah, you know, with just a little bit for us to follow along. Right, right. And uh, it also brings back the question of nomenclature... Uh, why, with so much of ancient current Earth knowledge being lost to the future, why do uh, why does Saturn Girl and Monel know what that uh, know what that star designation signifies? Yeah, that's it's not thought through, but it. I mean, it is clearly just they wanted they decided they wanted us to only have ladies on this trip, and they tried to come up with some way to do it, and probably could have done it better, but here we are. <laughs> Just to wrap up the silliness of the Y chromosome stuff. Also, it didn't say it was lethal to men. They said it was lethal to Y chromosomes, which I think is pretty safe to say Monel and Joan don't have. <laughs> In fact, lots of mammals on this planet don't have Y chromosomes. 
There are the chromosomes are species dependent. Oh, that's a good point. Hmm. Yeah, they could have even said something like, "Oh, our species also have men with Y chromosomes." Like <laughs> something like that too. <laughs> well, we do know now from this that Jean Jones does not shapeshift down to the cellular level. Uh, he does not actually turn into a woman when he takes the shape of a woman. He's just moving stuff around. So that's, you know, one little more piece of understanding Jean Jones. <laughs> so moving on, as this episode must do, <laughs> they then decide that the uh, rather than taking a bunch of extra DEO agents with them, they're going to take two prisoners and uh, uh get them to promise to be on their best behavior. So they bring back Livewire, whom I always enjoy. She was in two episodes in season one and one in season two, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, she she is a woman, a former CatCo employee who has really bad anger management issues. Um, and she has the power of electricity. And they also bring back Sai, who was in just one episode this year and she has mental powers to trigger people's fears um uh david was it you or scott who complained uh that they had wasted the actress um in a one-shot monster of the week episode i think everyone on that episode sort of had that feeling and while I really, really love Livewire in this episode, I can't quite tell if I think they do Psy better or not. And I don't know what it is. Oh, I don't remember this from Psy. She always talked like an antiquated textbook. Like, I, I remember yes. her... Okay, all right. I just didn't I think she that. did do villain villainous speech before. Okay. And that's actually one thing I always liked about Livewire is that she's... She, she has her anger issues, but she's pretty down-to-earth and relatable. And Sai, you know, when she got her, her powers, she just went flat-out evil and cruel. Um, so I find Livewire's whole redemption arc more believable than I think I'm ever going to find what they do with Sai. Every word out of Livewire feels believable. And I think the actor does just an amazing job of that performance. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. can't tell if the size a combination of the writing or the performance. Because on the podcast, we heard that the actor does a very good job in other roles. But in this one, it just it feels so stilted as a function of maybe how th she's being told to do it. That it's hard. Yeah. I, it does give us this amazing scene where Livewire even says to Sai, do you always talk like that? <laughs> yeah, I love that line. <laughs> Which is really what the audience must be thinking, too. So I, I really like that. I'd like to actually briefly cover one thing right when Supergirl was picking up Livewire, when when she met her, because I thought that scene was really interesting. Almost it felt like the Supergirl as a classist Kryptonian. I think there was a, a strange vibe there where Supergirl, who is this this sort of godly character from Krypton, and also has these amazing jobs, which obviously pay her ridiculous amounts. And have her just sort of go into the back alley where she seems to almost look down on someone who actually tries to do their job, if somewhat violently. It felt like there was some strange classist things going on in that scene. So that actually goes to a point that I have for the entire episode where all of Livewire's stances and positions make sense, but a lot of Supergirl's 
interactions in that same relationship seem to feel a little off. And I think it's because it's almost like in this, Supergirl sort of has to cop an attitude to be able to get along, or I guess to interact with Livewire. So I feel like maybe that's what they were going for, is she has to sort of insert some snark and some roughness to her, the way she speaks, in order for Livewire to take her seriously. Like, maybe that's what they were going for here. But uh, but it comes across in some... uh, During this scene, there's a point where, uh, you know, she tells Livewire that she has to go somewhere where she doesn't have powers. And it's like, I don't know why you would volunteer that information. Um, and there's a point later on where she volunteers information. And, and and I understand that the reason for it is to get her and Livewire to sort of connect and become more friendly. So Livewire thinks of her as a friend before, you know, the end of the episode. But it feels a little bit like, again, Livewire's responses make perfect sense. But Supergirl is sort of initiating the conversations or reacting in ways that don't quite make sense for her. But I'll take it. I will still take them being sort of friendly by the end. <laughs> I think sort of she was offering vulnerability as a token of honesty to a live wire would be how I took it for the most part. Mm-hmm. But yeah. not just manipulating and making demands. It did still come off strange sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think that's what they were going for. Um, but in, in this particular scene, though, uh, speaking of making sense, Livewire's logic makes perfect sense, and the proposition makes sense. It's, it, you know, it's sort of a... Uh, and somebody in the previous episode of the podcast uh, mentioned that... Uh, what's her name? Um, Rain is sort of like uh, the Punisher to, you know, mm-hmm. Supergirl's more, you know, lawful uh, nature. And from Livewire's perspective, it makes total sense to take Supergirl's side against Rain, even if she doesn't like her. Because, yeah, if you, do you want Batman or the Punisher after you, right? <laughs> do you want the person who, <laughs> right. if they catch you, is going to kill you or, or not? So, um, so that makes sense from her perspective. And I think that they did that well. And uh, it was specified that this was not supposed to be taking Livewire off for a fight against Rain. Uh, they were doing an intel mission, and then it turned into something else. But it made sense that Rain, I mean, sorry, that uh, Livewire would agree to, to help to that extent. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and I just wanted to mention, um, I, I don't much care for size bombastic speeches, but I did love her facial reactions throughout the episode. She's very expressive, um, and, you know, she didn't make a speech every time the um, headgear inhibitor was taken off, but, you know, you could see what a relief it was to get that buzzing hanging over device or whatever it is, however it works, uh, and, you know, have her be free again. And there, at the end, uh, when when uh, Supergirl said, "Get her a better cell," uh, she kind of winked. And um, so, if she can just get some better writing, maybe I'll maybe I'll like her more. But um, I I I am sad to see Livewire go. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. <laughs> My favorite facial expression that Sai gave us was when Supergirl says. We're all here for the same reason. And Sai just scrunches up and looks at her like she's crazy. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> yes. I, I quit like that. It was quick. Yeah, her, her physical acting is really good. The, the facial acting is great. Like you just, you can read so much without her saying anything. And I, I agree totally, Trish, that like if her writing was brought up to the, uh, the speed of her facial expressions, we would, uh, they put her in a pretty great place. Just back to Livewire for a minute. One more thing. Um, I really liked how she still hates being called Leslie, that she uh, remembered uh, Mon-El and called him cosplay again. 
but she didn't remember when. <laughs> and she tried to have girl talk with Kara about their relationships. So do you hate her with every fiber of your being? <laughs> I just enjoyed her so much. <laughs> she is really great. So, uh, speaking of interactions, I also, in this episode, really loved the interplay between Brainiac and Wen. Um, Brainiac, of course, is convinced that he's the smartest guy in the room all the time. And maybe he is the smartest guy, but he's certainly not always the wisest guy. And I, uh, I really, really enjoyed that uh, Wen finally uh, outwitted him, or uh, at least applied his local knowledge uh, in a way that Brainiac could not, and saved the day. Save the day by uh, somehow allowing real-time communication across light years by bouncing off of an old satellite. So, <laughs> yes, that's another super science moment. We have somehow we have FTL communications. That's uh, that's really neat. <laughs> FTL communications that require line of sight and therefore are totally using <laughs> RF, right? So it's not like a it's not like they're using some kind of quantum quantum entanglement thing or or something you know special like that, which they totally could do, but then they wouldn't be able to come up with a way for it to stop working. This is all true, and of my list of things to put in the super science category, the FTL communication, I'll almost give that to them. But I will give this to the show. The idea of using one of the Voyager probes to get a better angle on the other star <laughs> is ingenious. I, I did love that. It doesn't really make any sense, but for all the other absolutely bizarrely stupid science things in the show, the idea of using a, uh, a far-off probe for a different angle of attack, I thought that was just a wonderful idea. So whoever, whoever wrote that little bit of science, they deserve kudos. <laughs> that, I, that idea I quite liked. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as long as, once you've assumed, or once you've made the assumption that, okay, line of sight is necessary, and we've accepted that, this is a great solution. And it's a great way to come up with a solution that makes sense for wind to propose that Brainiac wouldn't come up with, too, right? Like, it's a great way right. to use wind's intelligence and knowledge in a way that Brainiac, and show Brainiac that, like, hey, you're not in your your element, and you need to be listening to other people. It felt a little bit that Brainiac was being used a bit too much of a joke. Uh, I, I, I think I could tire if they play that too often. But it, it worked in this episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping that they just sort of cap it with this episode. He learns his lesson and therefore maybe is a little bit cocky at times, but will partake in discussions in the future. I do still like the actor. <laughs> Yes, yes, he's fun to watch. Um, but he and Wen together are really, really fun to watch. I know what turbulence is! <laughs> One thing I find in this episode that I almost feel like I have to rewatch all Supergirl to really understand what the writers use the term for is when they use the word human. Because a little later we get the scene of Rain talking to presumably the hologram Dark Priestess. And She's describing how there's still a human inside her and all of this aspect of humanity where I don't know if it's this being used as a shorthand for, I don't know, being nice or what, but it's not like any aspect of Rain is human. So like throughout this stuff, there's always these, these episodes, there's references to humanness. And we've been getting this very strongly in the season from Kara. And 
I don't quite know what the writers are trying to say. It sounds like they're just ascribing feelings to humanity. And so it's like a cultural humanity thing rather than anything else, uh, which I guess just means Kryptonians don't have feelings other than anger and pride. Uh, I mean, <laughs> which uh, you've touched on before, David. So. <laughs> um, that makes brings up a point about Rain also that um, she tells Kara that her powers do not depend on something as as whatever the word she was something like a yellow sun she says d- dismissively the, she says as trivial as the from, sun as trivial as yeah. the sun thank <laughs> you um so is she powered by rage or what i am curious I, yeah, and that's to me, that's actually sort of a super science thing. It's like, okay, well, so we've accepted that Kryptonian powers make sense on Earth because, and they're fueled by the sun. So somehow somebody has an ad- identical set of powers that look exactly the same, but with a different source, which, you know, I mean, comic books. So I, I get it. <laughs> but, but still, like, I'm definitely also, I want to know, hopefully they'll address that and don't just make it as a pat, like a hand wavy thing that we never revisit. I don't know if it'll matter or not. I think. The world builders, I think, are basically genetically engineered creatures, and it would make sense if you're trying to build generic world destroyers that you can send off anywhere, maybe. You wouldn't want them to be dependent on the sun. So it's also possible that the yellow sun just unlocks power in Kryptonians, and the Hmm. world builders somehow have unlocked that genetically some other way. I was okay with that. Yeah, um... Which, I mean, and we'll get to, because I think it was the end of last episode that we revealed that there are more world killers than just, uh, than Rain, and then this one we find out more about at the end, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But, uh, but it it definitely, I have a lot of questions about their origin at this point. Right. So, we have a fairly meaningless battle before we actually get to the priestess, but it does have the thing where, um... Sai is momentarily, you know, knocked knocked down, and Imra goes over to help her or comfort her or whatever, and Sai uh, uses her power on Imra. Um, now, we don't get to see what Imra's flashback was. I'm curious about that, but I doubt we'll ever find out. Um, but I could see where it could have just been a startle reaction as she was coming out of nearly unconsciousness. Um, I could see that it might not have been deliberate, uh, but uh, other people were pretty sure that it was deliberate. And so she got locked back into her inhibitor and put back on the ship for a while. Uh, I think Supergirl's tack was actually pretty reasonable where she essentially said, like, hey, whether it was, you know, whether we can't trust you or you just lost control, we can't afford that right now. And I think that was pretty reasonable, mm-hmm. honestly. Okay, fair yeah, enough. The reaction was reasonable. I can't tell if this was a Watsonian or Doyleist thing. I, it seemed very strange. I think really they just sort of wanted to set up Supergirl's line and set up the unlocking of her again. I interpreted it as being accidental, but it was it was a little strange, sort of this middle bit where they have the initial fight and the initial capture, and then this with Psy. There's a little pocket of the episode which sort of clunks along a little bit, and then it flows much better after they've broken up into two parties. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. So Rain does show up on the space station, and uh, she finds Supergirl has uh, encountered the priestess and is talking with her, and then Rain shows up. And I really liked how the priest priestess greeted her so joyfully, you know, uh, and then 
rain just drilled her without a second thought with her with her heat vision i suppose that was anyway she rain kills the priestess right away no conversation just you're you are posing a possible danger to me through your knowledge so you are dead now which of course we're all expecting as soon as she turns her back to rain to face uh face kara right (laughs) (laughs) right but sometimes meeting expectations is a good thing oh absolutely (laughs) not done that you'd be going come on yeah, like, uh, no complaint from me. <laughs> Simultaneously to this, we also have the other super science I have to add, which is a solar flare happens and pulls Fort Ross into the star and they will crash within a few hours. That is not what solar flares do. If anything, a solar flare would push something away from it. That's not how any of this works. <laughs> this way. But I just had to add that one additional super science item. Can't miss any. There's there's another one to come. I mean, they could have just said gravity fluctuation or something, but solar flare is just immediately obviously wrong. My concern a little bit with this part of the episode, and we do get these scenes you really like, Trish, with Wayne and Brainiac 5. I don't Mm -hmm. quite understand why Imra can't do what Brainiac 5 does. Effectively, Imra is basically reduced down to doing communications on a ship, which is not really what I'd like to see her do. Yes. All they had Brainiac 5 do was use the ship to control Fort Ross's engines to get back into orbit. I have difficulty comprehending why they couldn't have Imra just do that. And and they wanted to because they want Wynn and Brainiac 5 to have that moment. But, eh. I would prefer it if Imra had been just knocked unconscious or something to explain why she was standing around doing nothing. I mean, honestly, like, for the communications thing, it feels like the communications went out so that we could have, you know, women relying on women and not relying on men, which is great, you know? But, but you could rescued. have just knocked them out. <laughs> Sorry? But then they're rescued by men. Right. And so <laughs> it, I don't understand why we needed the communications to come back. I don't see what the value there was, really. So we could have just had, you know non-line-of-sight communications, and that stuff gets destroyed on the ship, and then we're like, all right, well, we're on our own until we get back. And then Imra actually gets to be the one who figures out how to fix things, right? And that would have been better from my perspective as well. So, uh, And then they just, you know, they're able to communicate when they finally get back to Earth, and that's it. And the men just have to deal with not being able to help, because that's not their job this time. Having the hero moment for Wynn and Brainiac 5, just, it, it, it took away from Imra there, I think. Yep. So anyway, with the battle, Supergirl, of course, tries to talk Rain into not being evil and stopping all the killing and all of that. And Rain is having none of it. And then Livewire shows up to to try to rescue Supergirl. Um, And then uh, Imra takes the inhibitor headgear off of Sai again and sends her off to, to help in that fight. So... Sai does manage to get to Rain and shake her up a little bit. Um, and we finally see Sam inside Rain. Uh, uh, she's having a nightmare of Ruby being taken away and she can't do anything about it. Um, and so, and then we actually hear Sam's voice coming out of Rain in her, you know, costume and everything we hear the vulnerability the confusion it seems like she's almost uh in control for a second but then rain takes control back and takes off 
So the uh, moment where Supergirl replies, Rain, is a beautiful moment. Because that obviously, for a moment, it shocks Rain, or Sam in that case. And then Rain takes over again. And that little moment was beautifully played. I agree. There's a lot about this scene that I like. Uh, I mean, because it does a lot about these women's relationships, right? Like, there's, of course, Livewire. This is sort of her... Her, her moment, right, where she mm-hmm. she sort of officially comes onto our side. Like this is this is real. She's she's stepping up when she really didn't need to. She could have run, you know, and That's uh, right. and she steps up and uh, and really does. She saves Supergirl twice, right? Because Rain had her, and then she fights her for a while, uh, and then afterwards, when Rain is going to go and deliberately kill Supergirl, she throws herself in the way taking it herself, and that's pretty significant. And then you also have this moment where. Supergirl being Supergirl uh, in the ways that, you know, it's why I love Superman and it's why I love Supergirl is that they will always just, you know, she appeals to the goodness in people even when no one else is willing to or no one else thinks it makes sense. And she does that and it doesn't work initially, but then it starts to. And then seeing that on, like you said, David, seeing that come on Rain's face is just, it really is a moment that that brings it all together. It's like, this is why Supergirl is the way she is because the moments where it almost works and the moments where it does work, those are worth it. Uh, and, you know, it makes her a different hero from the one that anybody else on the show would be. There really are a lot of awesome scenes with Livewire leading up to this as well. Mm-hmm. Initially in the corridors, Livewire has that fight with presumably two acolytes of the Dark Priestess or something, and there's, I think, some CG effect where they don't figure out how to open and close doors, but they she does some cool things with lightning to open doors, close doors, fly around. Her fight with Rain is easily, I think, the best fight this show's done with Rain. I agree. It was almost interesting. Uh, and so <laughs> this is not a nitpick. I just, since we're talking about super science, it's it's an old trope that I'm just calling attention to here. There was a point where the two of them, like, it's the lightning and the heat beams going at each other. Ah, yes. And I mean, this is, you know, it's an old trope. I'm not, I'm not saying that they came up with it or they did anything particularly silly here. But it's just really funny to me because I'm pretty sure that if you threw, like, lightning at one person and a heat, like, laser at the other, they would both just get hit with the full brunt of it. They wouldn't cancel each other out. So, uh... But you know, yes, one of them is electron electromagnetic, <laughs> and the other has to do with the uh, excitation of molecules. And yeah, they 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 would just pass right through each other and kill each other. So that said, it's a great scene. To be fair, two heat vision blasts also probably wouldn't cancel them out. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> there's things you give the show, and there's things you wouldn't. I considered adding that to my super science list and going, eh, it's the genre. Uh. Yeah, I, I'm just, I'm retroactively applying this to every single moment it's happened in this or anywhere else. So, uh, but yeah, it is totally fine. It's, it's a thing we've accepted. Exactly. <laughs> what I might say I won't accept, though, is my, one of my last super science things for this episode, which is Monel saying the line, 19 minutes to Event Horizon. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Doesn't make any sense. <laughs> I think Ruby could have figured this out. Like, <laughs> uh, I, I, like, there's no black hole involved here. There's no coming back from light. I don't even understand how they're going to hit the sun that quickly, but I just don't know what the writer's doing. I don't, I don't know how the same writer who could come up with the idea of bouncing something off Voyager, which is a great idea, even if it wouldn't work, would also give us the line referencing Event Horizon in this episode whatsoever. So that that was my last super science WTF of this episode. I think that's basically the end of the events over here, right? Well, then uh, I think that is the end of the events on Fort Ross. Right. Uh, but then we have a crucial scene 
back on Earth where uh, where Sam comes to pick up Ruby from Alex and finally, finally realizes that this little time, these lost time moments are real and that she actually didn't show up for a business trip that she was supposed to go to. She has all these worried, frantic texts from, uh, from, from Lana, you know, why, why didn't you get in the car uh, in, in the airport on the plane? That you didn't take. Um, <laughs> so uh, she finally uh, admits to Alex that this is going on, and so uh, this 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 is great. We're finally getting an acknowledgement that this super busy CEO person or acting CEO, whatever her title is, that her frequent absences are a problem in her business life, and they've finally caught up with her. Um, I'm really curious to find out what's going to happen next episode. Is she is she going to tell Lana what's been going on too? I I can't think of any explanation she could come up that would cover cover this um, other than the truth. And then if she tells other people, are uh, are Alex and the DEO going to figure out that these uh, missing time moments coincide with Rain's appearances? I uh, this is probably my single favorite scene in the season so far because i feel like they've earned a lot of this like for me uh i looked up the actress's name uh, odette annabelle um she does an amazing job of convincing me she's actually freaking out and has no idea what's going on Uh, yes and the scene like her and the sort of just the looks between her and alex and the way the weight of this moment i think it's delivering on it, it would only be possible if building on the relationships that they've spent time building, like making us believe that, hey, these are women who actually care about each other and they know each other and she would come to her about this. Uh, It's also, I think, really important that it's clear she's losing time beyond just when she switches over. So she's losing retroactive time and forgetting, because she doesn't even remember telling them she had a trip and she did have a trip, right? right? Uh, Right. And that's really a thing that happens. So the fact that she's losing time outside of that also makes it a little bit more sense that she wouldn't say anything because it's not like she deeply suspects she's rain or something. She's just like not even it's sort of fuzzy at the edges. Like she doesn't know what she's missing and what she's not, you know? Uh, I think that goes a long way. Like you, I'm really looking forward to what they do next. And I really hope they pay it off because there's so many ways they could pay this off well and probably ways that they could botch it. Uh, and I'm really hoping <laughs> that they do the good, uh, the good side of that because so far I think they've done a great job with her and really, like, I, I just really felt the weight of her scene, and I really like Sam as a character, uh, and they haven't messed that up yet. <laughs> yeah, I, sorry, just, I agree 100% that uh, what they did today worked, I mean, sorry, not today, in this episode, uh, just worked really, really well, and it gives me hope that they'll continue uh, treating this storyline well. It almost amazes me how much I like how the actor does Sam versus how boring the actor does Rain. And that the dichotomy, yeah. it's shocking how big of a difference there is there. Even when they play the transition points where you can tell it's Sam and then Rain takes over. And even those are played really well with the body language. But still Rain is boring. I find it amazing. I think Sam is this amazingly interesting character of Someone who definitively has a life, family, work, supervillain balance problem. And really, that's sort of what it is. I I can't imagine they're going to give me 
uh, explanation that'll accept what actually happens during those transitions. Like, when does Rain put on her costume? When does she take her off her costume and put Sam's clothes back on? There's some things mm-hmm. in there where if they can, if they could, I don't think they'll bother. I think it'll be ignored. Yeah, I think they should avoid it. <laughs> they, and they should avoid it because I just don't think they can do it justice. And it's, some things in there are just strange. Like, I don't, they have her look at her cell phone and it's like, well, maybe she psychologically wasn't able to look at her cell phone before that point. But it's even amazing she showed up at the right time. And, and that's, I think, goes to the, uh, to that she's losing time both kind of before and after the rain windows. So there's something going on where it's sort of just this fuzziness that puts her on autopilot mode or something like that, yeah. right? So uh, so those moments when we've seen her pause before and sort of space out, it looks like she's just gone there. She's not really actively in either mode. And I, I mean, I think that makes sense as a way to just fudge the sort of, yeah, no, it's not like she suddenly was her and saw the the phone, right? Like it, it helps us just be, I think this is an acceptable hand wave for me. Mm-hmm. As long as the payoff is good. I have no problem giving it to them. I had one question regarding the information that was gathered from the Dark Priestess. Because at the end of the episode, they basically learned that there were more world killers. And then they made a list of them, and they said that they were called Pestilence and Purity. So I was wondering if those were... If in this context they were saying they were names, or she was just defining what they are. I don't know. Because I interpreted them as names, and I think they are names. But what's also strange is when listening to the Dark Priestess's list, I thought she said the power and the pestilence and the purity. I thought she named three. Hmm. So I, I they could go any number of ways. That. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're to- they could totally be names and it could be two or three. It could also be, uh, you know, just qualities, because if you think about it, um, you know, presumably and hopefully now that, you know, we're talking about the world killers, you know, at the very end, we see a person, you know, a who looks like a human woman turns out she has powers and I think very clearly is one of the world killers, but it's not like they arrived on. I, I mean, I don't know how they would have arrived if not from uh, in the same spaceship as rain. So maybe they came via Fort Ross, something like that, but either way, it feels like the way to beating rain and the world killers is not via power. So I hope really we end up not killing any of them. And it turns out the so-called humanity, quote, corrupted the purity of these, right? If purity is an inherent quality of the world killers, then maybe the the humanity that they've been given from Earth is what defeats them, right? Um, right. Good... Well, I definitely hope that's what happens with Rain, uh, because we want Sam to come back and conquer her possessor. <laughs> I'm pretty confident that the world killer we saw was, in fact, the named purity. But we'll see how that plays out. Um. Uh, I know, I think we skipped one small conversation, and it's less important, but it's a, sort of a bonding moment between Kara and Monel, um, sort of at the end. Uh, and it it was Monel telling Kara that she should, you know, Kara was beating herself up because she couldn't, uh, you know, reach Rain. And Monel was like, but you did reach Livewire, and that's something, right? Um, and I mean, I appreciated that, but it actually got to a smaller other issue where. I'm a little uncomfortable with how long they've dragged out Supergirl's discomfort with Imra. Because uh, I really liked the initial point, right? Like, it should definitely be uncomfortable for her. But she's accepted, a, like, a while ago that, hey, it's not Imra's fault. It's not Monel's fault. And I, I mean, yes, I don't mind her being uncomfortable, but that it keeps kind of coming up in conversations. I feel like I feel like she is more than strong enough to not need to lean on people for it anymore. Like, like she's sort of gotten past that phase, I feel like. And I'm hoping that the conversation here and Monel sort of having this 
relaxing conversation that she didn't leave with tension is kind of the end of that and resolves this relationship. But it felt like a wrap up of that thread to me. I hope that it is. Um, yeah, uh, with the ending con- conversation with Monel, he was not only saying but demonstrating that he has grown way beyond the guy he used to be. Um, He's acquired new conversational skills and logic skills and leadership skills. And so, you know, he really is a different person than the one Kara knew. Um, And so uh, I think that should make the letting go be a little easier. Um, And it felt like, okay, we're done with this now. And so, yeah, I really hope that this is... The resolution of, of all that. I have in my notes, we can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely interpreted this as they're having an adult conversation, and that's very nice. I don't know if this is a CW thing, or it's just, this is really Carr's first relationship, and that's made the difficulty, but it, it did feel like a nice bookend of an adult conversation between two people who can move on. And yeah, I hope. I have hope. Me too. Okay, so I think that's it for this episode. We've enjoyed discussing it. We hope that you all, our listeners, enjoyed hearing it. Uh, Thanks to the Incomparable Network for hosting our discussions. And thanks, of course, as always, to our audio editor, Seth Heasley. And thanks to uh, the listeners. We'd love to continue this discussion on the Incomparable Facebook group or the uh, members Slack channel or even Twitter. And of course, thank you, David and Michael, for joining me today. Thank you. Good to be here. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye.